You're listening to Healthcare Now Radio. Stand by for this just in the latest in healthcare innovation and technology trends with your HIT advisor, Justin Barnes. Broadcasting live from the Orlando Orange County Convention Center for Hymns 17. It's this Justin. Now, here's your host, Justin Barnes. Thank you very much, Ryan, and very excited about our next session here. We're going to do a panel and really talk about um, navigating value based care and different strategies and solutions and opportunities with that. And I certainly want to thank our sponsor, Lenovo Health. Phenomenal. I'm actually, this is, this is really at the epicenter where healthcare is today. So this is fantastic. But before we dive in too deep with the questions, I'm going to start to kind of work our way around the, um, the panel here and everybody introduce themselves. So uh, Razu, why don't you start off, please? Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, my name is Razu Shrestha. I'm a radiologist by background. I'm currently the chief innovation officer at UPMC and the executive vice president for UPMC Enterprises. And a return guest as well. Absolutely. Happy to be back. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Dr. McCoy? Hi, I'm Michael McCoy. I'm an obstetrician gynecologist by background, and I've been in the health information technology realm for uh, a decade and a half doing a variety of things. Uh, Fantastic. Yeah, you and I have collaborated a lot in the past and running a lot of fence line together over the last 10, 12 years. And welcome back to the show as well. Thank Thank you. you. Um, Tom Foley? Thank you. Uh, Tom Foley, I am responsible for, uh, I work at Lenovo Health uh, and leading the uh, worldwide health solution strategy on their behalf. Excellent. And uh, Dr. John Blair? Yes, John Blair. I'm the CEO of MedAllies. I'm a physician that spent 20 years in academic medicine and private practice, and now I'm in health information technology and interoperability specifically. Excellent. And Tom Sullivan. Yes, thank you, Justin. Tom Sullivan. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Healthcare IT News, and we are here to cover all of the exciting innovations that are happening here and to learn from people such as our panelists on the stage. I totally agree. So let's start off um, a little bit, uh, and I'm going to get everybody's perspective. So this is going to take a little bit of time just because I want to walk around. Um, and everybody's navigating value-based care differently, and we've all, we're all engaging it um, differently. Start off from your perspective, Razu, what you're doing, what you're doing at the UPMC and your perspective and how you guys are engaging it. Yeah, so it's, uh, it's amazing. We're at an amazing time right now because you know, we talk a lot in the industry about this journey from volume to value. Uh, what's unique about UPMC, given the fact that we're both in a payer and a provider organization, is this yin and yang of the payer provider is mm-hmm. not just talk, it's action, it yeah. is reality for us, right? It is what we're doing and how we're doing it is what differentiates us from some of the other entities that exist out there. And it's really interesting because on the provider side, we've got, what, 25 hospitals, 3,800 physicians across the board. Um, but on the payer side, we have you know 3.1, 3.2 million members, okay? And when we, as, a, as an entity at UPMC, make specific decisions strategically, we don't say, all right, let's just make it based on what we need for the patients who we see on the provider side or the members, the health plan members that we have on the payer side. 
we take more of a person-centric approach to care, okay? Because that member could be a patient at yeah. a certain point. Very true. And, and so, so this yin and yang of uh, the payer-provider realm really comes to be um, the crux of the strategy that drives innovation and interoperability and all the things that we'll talk about today. Excellent. And Mike, you obviously have a unique perspective. You've been on the provider side, you, you've been on the vendor side, so what are some of your thoughts there? Well, part of the challenge in achieving the balance between what's needed to achieve the, the value-based care is how do you transition from the current fee-for-service mm -hmm. realm, how do you provide the tools to allow individuals to be participatory in their own care, how do you allow clinicians to find that information about people and know that you're dealing with the right information? How do you uh, make all of that accessible real time so that people can make informed decision and not be uh, distracted by the noise that goes on with so much data? So true. And so there are a number of, of uh, issues that, particularly in this transitory uh, or transition time uh, from one administration to another, mm -hmm. uh, the, the good news is bipartisan perspective that we've had allows us to at least forecast that we cannot continue to expand the cost of medicine. We have to do things that derive a, a better value for clinicians, mm -hmm. for hospital systems, for payers, and particularly for individuals who may have high deductible savings or whatever. So all those things I think have to play into how we approach value-based care and the transition to it. And completely agree. And one of the things, I think you um, you have a good beat on security, and so now we're going to dive into that. Um, we talked about that on the show a couple weeks ago, and I want to dive into that in this segment as well. Um, so, Tom, what are some of your perspectives? I mean, obviously, you're a patient, you're a consumer, but then also from Lenovo Health. I mean, how are you guys engaging um, value-based care and, and um, alike? So, when we look at value-based care, the question is, how do you get there? And I couldn't agree more with what Dr. McCoy uh, was indicating, and that is really about the quality of the data. So it's real, and if you're not going to address that problem, you, you, you're not going to get to value. Uh, and, I'll, and I'll use an example. We have a client, I won't name names, but we have a client who, an ACO in and of themselves, uh, thought they had uh, 7 million managed lives. And, uh, and, only, and when you look, look at the data, they only had about six. So when you're an ACO and, you're, and you have a lack of quality of the data, you have a very tough time raising the bar of everyone so that you can actually achieve the uh, or and cover your risk, if you will, from a business pure business perspective. So we we're looking at you know what are the legacy you know in order to cross that chasm, there are still some legacy challenges in the industry, and we're helping our clients cross that chasm and by addressing those those primary uh, uh, legacy challenges. Yeah. Again, it's not something that uh, any one EHR vendor is right. going to solve. It's something that uh, needs to be solved from a purely from a healthcare system perspective and an integration perspective. Yeah. To make and we're going to dive into some of the barriers here in a moment because I know yes. you've got some really cool ideas there. Um, John. Yes, yeah, so when you talk about value-based care, <clears throat> you're talking about the movement from fee-for-service to value. And fee-for-service has been part of what's gotten this country to some of the best healthcare capability in the world. However, not some of the best overall results in the world, and it's, it's because it's so fragmented, that care. And value-based care starts to get at bringing that fragmentation together and virtualizing care. So what we're working on and, and, and spent a lot of time on is you hear about 
patient-centered care and putting the patient at the center. So we believe strongly that primary care at the center, uh, taking that responsibility to coordinate care, particularly across the sickest patients, mm -hmm. starts to really bring that value, increase the um, quality, decrease the cost. And so we're very interested in the patient-centered medical home, transformation of primary care, integration across the community, and then that gets into, at the heart of it, interoperability to coordinate that care. So we're interested in transformation, the actual getting in the trenches and the workflow redesign, but we're also interested in the infrastructure of technology to connect and, and allow that interoperability. Yep, nope, and we're about to, uh, so Tom, I'm gonna start off with, um, this next question is around barriers, because I think that's what we really want to dive into and look for best practices. But from your perspective, you know, being editor-in-chief of Healthcare T News, what are some of the barriers that you've exposed and you've written about and out there? Well, the common, the common ones, I think everybody, you know, pretty much everyone is familiar with a lot of the barriers to value-based care. It's, it is, as Dr. Blair said, shifting from fee-for-service to alternative payment models. It's also having, like Tom said, quality data Data has been called the new currency, the new oil. And at the same yeah. time, anyone paying attention also knows that if it's not quality data, you can't do much with it. Right. So I think that data quality is probably the biggest barrier. And then, of course, competition providers not wanting to share that data with other people, Very with true. other providers. No, oh, excellent. So coming back around, Dr. Blair, what are some of the barriers that you've experienced um, with MedAllies and, and your community there? So you have an infrastructure problem, and I would say that now, at least better than 10, 15 years ago, connectivity is, if not solved, is significantly better. So even though you have disparate systems across the healthcare spectrum, you have connectivity. The problem, though, is you do not have great usability mm -hmm. around that connectivity and a lot of the content issues create problems. So connectivity's there, we're not there with interoperability because of content, security issues, and workflow for those disparate systems. Now once you deal with that infrastructure piece, then you have to train different organizations to work with each other as if they're one. So there's a training issue, and a compliance issue around the workforce. So I'd say infrastructure, workforce are two large barriers. So let me just add one more question there. Do you guys have, uh, in your part of New York, um, Fishkill area, and do you guys have a, a lot of value-based care contracts that are available to you, the, the payers? Or? So we're part of the Comprehensive Primary Care Initiative. Okay. Yep. We, are, we are the faculty in New York. Okay. Actually, we just got uh, asked to join in the CPC Plus, yep. so we're going from 600 or six, 60 practices to 600, Excellent. so we're getting another state. So we deal with all of that, and we've been doing pay for performance for the last yes, 15 yes. years. Yeah, so, yeah. so we've been, we were, the, we were doing the precursor okay. to value-based yep. care. Excellent. So what are some of the barriers, Tom, um, that you guys are experiencing that you're helping navigate? So as we, as we talk to the client and we talk to the market around, uh, again, how do you get to a quality data set, we find that there's a lack of awareness about what the technology actually does and doesn't do for you. Completely. So uh, from an EMPI as an example, 
an EMPI is not, you know, we talk to clients and say, we got an EMPI, we're, we're, we're good. That, that is not a true statement. So not only an EMPI and, and some folks say, hey, we're collecting biometrics and uh, we're good there. So we solve our problems or we're, uh, we're an all X shop and therefore they got it covered for us. And I, and I, I think if you, you peel the onion a bit, you're gonna find, uh, and, and I think reality will show, that uh, just collecting the biometrics and, and thinking that you've identity proofed someone are two different things. Mm -hmm. uh, just uh, just having an EMPI will not get you to a value-based care model. Okay, totally agree. Yeah. So uh, again, uh, and so we we focus a lot of time in our in our messaging around the advocacy and, and the awareness of what an EMPI does and doesn't do, what collecting a biometrics does and doesn't do for you, and then ultimately, you know, and, and most importantly, not just raising, you know, checking them on the awareness, but putting a model out there that actually suggests what you should do end to end, and take a look at that model. So when you're gonna look for a vendor, if you're gonna look for something to do uh, in this space to, to uh, address your quality of data, look at this model. And, and, and embrace it, and you can change it if you want, but use it as a framework for looking at an end-to-end -end model, which we have vetted through focus groups and, and things of that nature to, um, uh, to, to ensure that obviously we have the credibility in what we're saying as well. Yeah, and I know we're gonna come, come around full circle to the unique patient identifier, so right. we'll dive into that in a, in a moment, but I, I agree. So, first yeah. of all, not unique patient because patient, and it should be a unique individual. There you uh, go. So yep. it, it's not patient-centered care, it's uh, person-centered care in order to accommodate that. So That's just it. as a, a clarification yep. or, or correction. Yep, no, very true. Um, and the unique health safety identifier is indeed critical. It's, it's one of the foundational elements to interoperability. It is, in and of itself, not enough to achieve interoperability. We do have connectivity, but connectivity is not the same as interoperability. And particularly, it's not the same as semantic interoperability. Right. Um, so I, I think that there, you know, there are several nuances there which are important. And let me just give sort of an anecdote. Uh, I'm Michael James McCoy, MD, but I don't use this. I don't use senior, but I have a Michael James McCoy Jr., my son, who lives at home, same addresses mm -hmm. as me. Over the years, we have actually the same bank. Okay. Same. You know, we've had. One of the cars that I own became his car. So when you do the usual kinds of things of identity proofing where you go to whatever the credit card bureau or the, yeah. and they ask, do you know uh, this person? Have you right. lived at this address? What was this car? He and I have exactly the same answers, but we're not the same person. So there's a lot more to simply matching, even the, the most ideal probabilistic matching won't get you to the same place. And uh, as Tom has correctly pointed out, you, know, you don't get to 100% by just having an EMPI. Right. You have to have a variety of other pieces in place. And unfortunately, some of the, the people at the front end of this um, process are not necessarily the most highly paid individuals who, or who have the most skin in the game to make sure they get the, the data right. So without a full process to make that happen correctly, you can't trust the data. And then you end up having bad outcomes because right. the yeah. wrong data is in or whatever. Yeah, no, agree. So, Razu, what are you guys seeing there and what, what are some of the barriers that you've come across yourself? Yeah. So, uh, we've been at this journey now for a while in terms of interoperability. <laughs> um, 
you know, we've been doing it for a while primarily because at UPMC we chose um, over a decade ago to go with what we fondly call a best of breed strategy around electronic medical record systems and clinical information systems. Um, what that means is um, controlled chaos, perhaps, at times, <laughs> okay? Um, so we've been doing this for a while. We, we've, in fact, gone through all of the trials and tribulations of syntactic and then semantic data harmonization and interoperability. And that, so, so in terms of hurdles and challenges, I'd, I'd bucket them into three, right? First and foremost, really, is, I think, culture. I think culture always is a big hurdle um, to some of the points that were discussed earlier in terms of data sharing, in terms of um, you know the perceived need or the notion to uh, control all of that data that exists within that one silo, right? And we're in the business of bridge building, not silo building, okay? So culture needs to be you know, critically addressed, especially as we're going from volume to value, especially as we're looking at data elements that not just exist within the traditional realm of the electronic health record system, but where we, we only have 20% of the data that we need to really get at things like social determinants of healthcare and everything else that exists outside of your clinical data systems. The second bucket really is technology, right? From a technology perspective, I'm here to tell you our experience has been that you know, having data is great and we've got lots and lots of data. We've got 9.7 petabytes worth of data at UPMC that's doubling every 18 months. But data onto itself, as rich as it makes you because it's like black gold, <laughs> um, is not worthwhile or not worth it if you don't get at insights. So how do you go from data to knowledge um, to information, to insights, right? You have to make that transition. And the way to do that really is to go from the bottom of the pyramid, which is syntactic data interoperability. You're connecting the pipes and the dots between all of these different silos that you have. Then you have this layer of identity management, intelligent identity management, where all of the things that we're talking about today, including um, you know, uh, our approaches around EMPI, adding biometrics, so we have a certify as um, uh, where we're taking thumbprints, fingerprints from our patients. And um, so you know, without them having to input um, you know, their social security number or their, you know, any identifier of their own, we're able to immediately connect them to the, the thousands of records that they may have across the system. And then on top of that, you build layers of semantic data interoperability and then get at enablement type capabilities such as analytics and you can layer on machine learning and everything else that you, that you want. The third bucket really quickly, uh, so if culture, technology are the first two buckets, the third bucket I'd say would be experience. Right? The mm. user experience is really important. If you think about this journey of volume to value, where we are today is we've replicated the analog workflow and the analog culture. Right, We've created electronic folders and files in our electronic medical record systems and we're doing more of billing and documentation. But this culture, the burnout that we see amongst physicians, right, the so nurses, true. all of the challenges that we have with Basically, propagating more of the analog culture, but digitizing it is what we've done in the last 20 years. How do we shift from that to one where we're focusing not just on sick care, but well care, where we're really saying, all right, value-based healthcare is about propagating wellness and making sure that our hospital beds are as empty as possible, mm -hmm. which is a different paradigm altogether, and really addressing the notion of user experience, both from 
empowering the clinician as well as empowering the person uh, on the other end. So culture, technology, and experience. Dr. McCoy, I'd like to go back to something that you said. You mentioned that you know an EMPI is not enough and that there are additional pieces, and you kind of explained why you think it's not enough. But what are those additional pieces that you need? You need true identity proofing, authentication. You need to know that the person who is saying that they're Michael McCoy is this Michael McCoy and not another Michael McCoy. And Michael McCoy is actually a relatively common name um, in certain places in Texas. Uh, you know, Juanita uh, sure. you know, Galvez is very common. Uh, our friends uh, in the University of, of Texas in San Antonio had, I think it was like 200 Maria Galvez's on one street. So it's something that if you just use what street are you on, and they're their approximate age, so you only look at a 24-year-old Hispanic female living in this area, that's not good enough. It's both from a perspective of identity theft, from getting things done to the wrong individual for the lab results or anything else. It can be a problem. So it's it's the whole process. That's much like Trusted Traveler or the GOES program or passport control, all those things prove that I'm who I say I am. But most people don't really look that closely at even just an ID that you flash as you check in at the hospital. Um, and so there are a lot of additional pieces that are a part of that puzzle. The MPI is not enough. Now, as the Tom Sullivan the third, I can completely relate to the story about you and your dad. I've gotten lucky sometimes when his airline miles show up in my mailbox, but I don't ever get to keep them. But Tom, I would ask you the same question That's here. Right. I mean, if, if we accept that any MPI is not enough, what, what's your perspective on what the other necessary pieces are here? I would agree with Dr. McCoy. At the, at the fundamentally, I, we believe that in order for a person to be mapped or uh, aligned with a medical record, it does start with truly identifying the person. Just because you collect the biometrics of somebody without identity proofing the person, doesn't mean that the biometric is a good marker. So starting with a, a true identity proofing process, I believe the ONC recommends that you identity proof a patient at a NIST level of assurance three. That's the, that's the guidance that we provide consistent with, with guidance from the ONC. So if you don't do that and, and, you, jump, uh, and you jump that fence and you do biometrics and you do uh, your own backend data reconciliation and feeling like you, you know we're at 99% of, uh, of purity in our data, we don't have duplicate records, then you, you really haven't been done enough. The numbers look good, but you haven't done enough relative to uh, addressing the problem. Well, Dr. Blair, it seems that the theme here, there's widespread agreement, at least as widespread as you can get with six people, <laughs> is the MPI is not enough. What, what are the pieces that you see as being necessary? What's MedAllies doing in this realm? Yeah, well, that's interesting. We have a lot of experience with ID proofing providers. We support probably 60 to 70,000 providers on a national network that utilize electronic health records to send and receive, and they have a high level of assurance. We do the LOA3 that was just mentioned, and so we ID proof 60,000 people at LOA3. To do that now with a patient, or a consumer, a non-physician, you've got, it's a different, it's different because a patient hasn't had, they're not a Medicare provider or they're not an employee that's had an I-9. So it's a whole different thing. So it gets at what was mentioned earlier, which is you've got to find a forum where you're going to do it, whether it's 
when they come in the hospital and whether there's a registration clerk that's had the proper training for Level Assurance 3 along with other components, but you, you need to marry up the, the different components for if you're gonna do Level of Assurance 3 ID proofing, get that in some kind of setting that a patient goes into. If that can be done, then you can assign a credential to that patient for ongoing authentication, tie that to a record, and that will take care of the problem. But there's, those are several steps to do that. Sure. So when you get to, at least hypothetically here, completing those steps, how does that enable MedAllies to get to value-based care? How does that help to get to value-based care in general? If, if the patient, in fact, is ID-proofed at a high level so that you really know that that's that patient, and all systems, remember I talked before about how everything's fragmented, and if those systems now, when they talk to each other, the patient is that same patient across those different care settings, you start to virtualize that record, you start to get to that interoperability, you start to allow for the coordination of care for those providers, and when you can coordinate that care, well, you do start to bring down the cost and increase the quality because you've improved care coordination, which drives higher value. So, Tom, is that is that in line with what you're seeing among Lenovo's clients? Yes, absolutely. It's um, uh, yes, absolutely. We uh, we see that as so. You know, the, the the key here is that when we talk about EMPIs and and identity, is that the you know we talk about a lot of different continuums, uh, volume to value. The the the, the one uh, transformation that I believe the market needs to make is that we need to move off of a probabilistic matching algorithm to a de more deterministic matching algorithm. You can achieve that if you have a, uh, a, uh, a uh, unique health safety identifier that is embraced by the, by the, uh, by the industry. So, Dr. McCoy, is the slight resident skeptic here about EMPI agree, disagree with what these two gentlemen just said, have a different take on it altogether? I'm not sure that I'm the resident skeptic. Uh, <laughs> I, I think the reality is that, again, EMPIs are not enough, but the, to the point of where do you get value and how do you get the trust factor, which clinicians are looking for in particular, so that they will believe that the radiology result from across the country or the lab result from across town is on that patient and is believable, that will help drive down a reduction uh, in duplicate test ordering, uh, unnecessary test ordering, et cetera. That's one step among many that have to happen to achieve better value. Uh, when we look at paying for outcomes instead of paying for the number of, of widgets that we do, be it lab tests, radiology tests, et cetera, that will help. Another is probably gonna have to come from payment reform in that if you do a duplicate test that you could have looked at on the HIE and found that it was done last week and you didn't really need to repeat it and you're not going to get paid for doing it again, that will also drive behavior. This is a culture issue as much as it is a technology. Again, connections, uh, connectivity is theirs. This is not necessarily a technology issue. There's a lot of process issues that have to be addressed, which that's not technology. That's tr the training, the education, the getting the frontline people to do what they're supposed to do effectively. But you know, that's part of the challenge. So I'm not sure I'm a skeptic um, as much as a realist. 
It was a joke. It was a joke. Just trying to keep it light here. There you go. Dr. Shrestha, what's your take on this? You haven't weighed in on this particular question yet, but the unique health safety identifier. Yeah, I think uh, the notion of the unique health uh, safety identifier is critical. It's absolutely important. I mean, if you look at you know, the movement that is still ongoing nationally, uh, it's a lot of debate around the unique uh, person identifier, right? Um, that's, that's important too. I, I think there were lots of naysayers or you know, pundits who said, hey, from a, from a data breach perspective or a privacy perspective, you know, what are the things that we're scratching that we're not quite ready to, to you know, scratch that itch right now? But I think it's really important for us to have you know, adult and grown-up conversations about the need for us to do this right. Um, and you know, our take on this is that technology is never the barrier. Technology isn't the barrier. I think, yes, is it, 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 you know, can we do more than an EMPI? Absolutely we can. All right? Do we have a need to do more than an EMPI? Absolutely we do. Okay? Um, from our perspective at, at UPMC, I'll tell you this. I mentioned earlier that we're in the business of building bridges, not propagating silos. Mm -hmm. right? So we have all of the different you know, hospitals, 25 different hospitals with multiple different silos of information systems that we're trying to aggregate data from and, and syntactically, semantically harmonize data. But then there's also the health plan, right? So some years back, one of the things that we did was we created a separate node at the health plan and then federated the provider node with the payer node for the first time ever, right? Federated the two nodes. We then created some years back a third node yet and this was our HIE, our Clinical Connect HIE node. For today, we have upwards of 12, 13 different organizations on the HIE with UPMC across Western Pennsylvania and more, where we're collecting data. If you look at this, you know, the number of vendors that we have across the HIE and Clinical Connect, it's like the hymns of floor here right now in terms of the variety of the different electronic medical record systems and the clinical information systems. To so go back to this, the basics of what we're talking about today, which is the complexity that exists in healthcare. I think technology is, you know, we have the right technologies. I, I think it's the mm -hmm. willingness to make sure that you're able to do this right so that you can bridge these silos so that you can get to more of a a complete story around what's going on with that person, right? What's going on? If, was that med uh, prescribed, which I have maybe in one EMR silo, right? And that medication adheres to maybe the Maltum standard. Um, maybe this patient has a record in some other silo, right? And that silo adheres to the NDC standard for the medications, okay? What we're doing is we're normalizing it to the baseline and mapping it back to the national standard. That's Rx norm. Right. Okay. We're then federating um, the information that we have on the claims for that medication on the payer side, and we're saying, all right, was that prescription filled? It gives you more complete data, but you can't get to that level of insight, not just the data, but insight, as I described earlier, if you're not able to have those foundational components of identifying those records, identifying those data elements, and ensuring that we're talking about that same John Smith. So, so Tom, if I can interject, one of the things that, that I think is important here is the unique health safety identifier is something that, even if it's tied into a record, if it is indeed unique and it's something that is privacy protecting so that it, you know, breaches happen. Mm -hmm. uh, and when breaches happen, if you tie it to a social security number or some other identifiable entity, that's bad. But the unique health safety identifiers can be reissued in the event of a breach. It's something that, you know, you don't, you can't change your first car, your mother's maiden name, et cetera, you can, but you know, all the usual security questions, uh, those are things that 
are problematic if you have a breach. So I think we, when we look at the unique health safety identifier, it's not just matching the patient so that you know that it's the right person that you're seeing. It's also privacy protecting as well. So let's pick up on that a little bit and take it to another level. Um, how will the unique safe, uh, health safety identifier enable greater interoperability among health systems? We talked about patients and, and individual experiences and or examples, but what do we do about other you know health systems in your community, but also across the country? Yeah, so that's a really important question, and I think it's uh, it's indicative of not just where we are as an industry today, but where we need to be right. as an industry in the next couple of years, hopefully sooner, perhaps. You know, yeah. and and where we are right now is where you know care is very local. And it'll continue to be local. Yes. Okay. But at the same time, it's really important to understand that, um, you know, as much as we at the health system feel that we control the data and we control everything around the care experience, that's not really true. Okay. Care is shifting, as is risk. Risk is shifting so true. from the payers to the providers and to the consumers, right? It's going, it's happening right now. We're seeing it day in, day out at UPMC. All right. So, with the shift in risk that is happening, with the shift in the, the models of care that we're seeing, we need to empower these consumers. We need to empower the persons, whether they're health plan members or patients that come into our institutions, to take charge of their data and allow for them to essentially uh, have uh, referrals, right? So the HIE is an extension of what we've been doing across the 20, now five hospitals at UPMC, and that's wonderful. But how do we ready ourselves for the reality of what's coming, which is this consumer-driven healthcare, where um, care happens well outside the walls, the bricks and mortar walls of the of the hospitals that we currently call home. Yeah. Well, that's I want to dive into that as a as a next part. But um, what's your perspective on that for interoperability amongst well, health systems? Well, again, I think there is migration of individuals. The, the last mile in the old uh, telephone metaphor uh, is, is changing mm -hmm. with telemedicine, with people traveling. While millennials are traveling less than any other group in, in the last 50 years, still people do go yeah. around to different places. Sure. And so within a metropolitan area, as in Atlanta, you have three major health systems competing, duking it out. Uh, as an individual, I actually go to all three. And I want to make sure that my data is available oh, okay. wherever it is that I go. Sure. So I think with the, the shift that's going to be happening because of the, the, both payers and the federal government pushing on it, there will be more connectivity that has to occur. The, the speed at which it occurs is somewhat in question. Um, and that's part We're of getting the, there. Yeah, yeah. but <laughs> we're getting there. Yeah. So from a Lenovo perspective, how do you guys enable this? Certainly across, I mean, we heard some great examples of individual cases, but across health systems. So. Yeah, so across health systems, uh, to, the, to the point of uh, what was both uh, said, we do believe that the consumer is the one, the person is the one that really needs to control their data. The industry hasn't done enough in that context, and it's very difficult to for them to achieve the elimination of duplicate records, medical, you know, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So now I'm in the home, and now I have the Internet of Things. I have uh, wireless blood pressure cuffs. I have uh, uh, scales and glucose monitors and and things of that nature. So I know that data came from me, yeah. but but the person that I send it to might not trust that data because it could have been someone else, right? So the whole, we talk about the, the unique health safety identifier, it being to me, but there's this, how do I translate that trust 
of the data that's collected in the home and, and to my care team and my care providers relative to uh, being able to look at that data and, and be able to, um, and to take action on that data. So the, I think we still have a long way to go and hopefully we're, we, we can address this sooner than later about how does the consumer uh, take in all that data you know, and quite frankly, to some degree, meaningful use went to some extent to that degree. The idea of providing electronic copy of your health records to the consumer uh, as part of MU2 uh, yeah. was, was enough. But the problem is that if we're all different healthcare systems at this table, we all have a different EHR, we all have different patient portals. And to Dr. McCoy, he goes to all three, you know, top three EHR vendors he's not going to three different patient portals. Right. So Sturger. we we need to make it easier for the consumer, whether it's the consumer that decides what portal they want to use or way they want to buy, you know, like an in, I am not advocating health call, but health call is a, is an is an example of kind of an independent portal that they can say, "Hey, here's my, you know, yeah. at the end of the day the consumer can say to their doctor, "Here's my here's my here's my card, send my data to this portal." And, and then I can collect it in the home, and I'm actually the only one that will have a single source of that truth. And, and how do I share that in a, in, a, in a proper way with the health system and, and my extended care team is, is a challenge in and of itself. But data is ultimately the, 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 uh, the fuel here that will drive transformation and, 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 the, and the aggregation and the credibility of that data and the provenance of that data is, is, is really, we got to solve that problem before if we're going to truly move towards uh, value-based care and, and, and beyond that. What are your perspectives on this, Dr. Blair? Well, I'm not sure exactly which piece you're asking, but I think you... The, um, the um, unique health safety identifier enabling interoperability amongst health systems, that aspect. Okay, so I'll get to that at the end, but we've talked about value. Mm -hmm. And we've talked about interoperability. We've talked about disparate systems and connectivity. So I want, I want to put things in a real clear perspective here. For the last um, 12, 15 years in the Hudson Valley, um, we've dealt with about 5,000 doctors, about 2 million patients. Um, Cornell has done most of the research in this area, in, in, in our region, but some of it by RAND. And we've had the opportunity to have a multi-payer database and a lot of data. Of the couple of dozen studies they've done in the Hudson Valley, one I think is pertinent to this. There was a paper-based group of doctors. These are doctors, mm -hmm. if we can believe that still. But back right. then, yeah. there were a lot more than, than, than there weren't. Right. There was a paper-based group. There was an electronic health record group. And then there was a group that was the patient-centered medical home. Now, electronic health records went in and we did not see quality go up or cost go down. Because remember, value is quality over cost. So yeah. we, not, we didn't see a change. Patient-centered medical home went in and quality went up, but we still didn't see any difference in cost. As we got connectivity and disparate systems started to get connected, and particularly care managers mm -hmm. started to take care of the patients. The complex patients, when they got discharged, cost went down. And these were you know, randomized controlled studies, significant changes. So it took not just digitizing the region, 95% of the, of the doctors are on, health, on electronic health records now. 
took not only digitizing the region, and it took not only getting patient-centered medical home, but it took that connectivity and the coordination of care before cost went down and value went up. So the connectivity and the interoperability component was the thing that finally increased value yep. um, significantly. That's and, and when those dis different systems talk to each other, getting into the patient identifier and being sure that's the same patient starts to become critical. So, again, the better the interoperability, the better the security on the connectivity around the patient records, the trust for that, the more you're going to increase value. That's excellent. So, uh, one question, um, well, Tom, you might have a question I want to... I was thinking about the, um, the shifting care models. I'd like to evolve a little bit because you brought it up earlier uh, on our segment uh, and shifting the care model um, in, out into the home and engaging the home. And, and, and I'd love to hear, and you brought it up a little bit, I think, and, and we keep on touching on it in different aspects, other than the hymn show floor, but how, like, how is this occurring or what are some of the examples or what are some of the strategies that you're thinking about from UPMC? And I'd love to get you from, from MedAllies and, and even how you guys enable it um, with Lenovo. And obviously, I think this is going to be a big piece to, to where healthcare is evolving. I think you and I even spoke about it um, with AI. Yeah. And, and Definitely something for us to track yeah. move, you know, now and moving forward as well. So yeah. look forward to your answers here. Yeah. yeah, so you know, one of the things that we believe in at UPMC is um, in the future of healthcare, right? We, we, we want to be in the driver's seat, not in the passenger seat. We want to invent the yeah. future of healthcare right. as it is being uh, built in front of us. So uh, when you talk about uh, moving away from the bricks and mortar um, hospitals to um, homes, mm -hmm. right? Uh, we're leading that charge on a number of different fronts. Um, one of the specific examples I can give you is through UPMC Enterprises, which is our um, uh, commercialization and innovation arm at UPMC, we're working with a, um, a partner called Vivify Health, uh, who's working both with the provider and the payer side across UPMC, as I described earlier. And one of the things that we're doing is we're risk stratifying our entire population because okay? risk stratification is re really important. As you go up in that pyramid that I described earlier, the key here is how do you risk stratify the patient population? But as we're discharging these patients that come in with chronic illnesses, we're discharging them not just with a prescription, a bag of pills, essentially, right? We're discharging them with technology, all right? And we're saying, we're monitoring these patients. We're, you know, and so we're so technologies such as apps or, or wearables and, and devices that are monitoring these patients that have been discharged with chronic illnesses. And before these patients know that they're falling off the guardrails, we know that they're falling off right. the guardrails. Or better yet, we know that they're about to fall off the guardrails. Right. Yes. right. And we're able to intervene with care managers, and and we're able to make sure that they go back in that circle of wellness. Right. So our belief in the future of healthcare is, and we say this, we make bold statements. We say, look, if our hospital beds are full in the future, we have failed, mm -hmm. right? So how do we get to that reality? Because that is not the reality of healthcare today. It's not the reality for us. It's not the reality for anyone today. Right. But in the future, that's gonna be the reality is if our hospital beds are filled, we have failed, right? So patients, need to um, obviously get better, and we're doing everything that we can from precision medicine to population health to all of the things that we're doing to, to engage them and, and to make them better. But how do we make sure that they remain in that circle of wellness, that 
uh, care as it's shifting from the hospitals to the home is managed in a much more coherent way as we're stratifying uh, all of the population across the geographies that we serve. Oh, that's excellent, Razu. Dr. Blair, any thoughts here, John, on, on how you would want to, um, how you manage the, the shifting from the, the bricks and mortar into the home and aspects of that, or what you see evolving? Well, I think I think they, it's, it's, it's shifting from the acute to the ambulatory and from the ambulatory to the home. Yeah. But getting back on what we just talked about, um, I just want to amplify the transition from the acute setting, the inpatient setting, to the home. And just give it a little example of how much the human component is and a little bit of technology. So we have ensured that on all discharges, and again, the risk stratification is critical because mm-hmm. some patients, the, the lift is not worth it, yeah. but, the, but the risk stratification is critical. But for the high-risk patients that have a particularly uh, great chance of readmission, you know, un- unnecessary readmission, those patients, we make sure that the summary of that, of that um, hospitalization and particularly the reconciled medication list. So what that patient really should be going home on is, is accurate and is understood by the responsible provider in the ambulatory space. Now, it's a small technology thing. All, all the capabilities are there in any hospital across the country right now to do that. I would say that what I'm getting ready to say probably happens less than 20% of the time. But the human part of that is we also now make sure that, that at the time of discharge, there's a communication between the hospital and the primary care practice. So that there's a handoff, clinician to clinician handoff, doesn't need to be physician or nurse or whatever, but they, but they make sure that they understand what's going on and then an appointment is made within three to five days for the high-risk patients and that that person on the ambulatory side then communicates with that sick patient, high-risk patient, once they get home to make sure that that reconciled med list is exactly what they're taking. Just so a lot of that was human interaction, redesign, compliance with those pieces, small piece of technology, which dramatically decreases the chance of a patient coming back in the hospital and significantly reduces cost. No, that's excellent. What thoughts do you have on this, Tom? Uh, Dr. Blair just hit on a very uh, important point, is that human interaction. Yeah. Um, brings we, us back we, to the panel. We, we just had a discussion yeah, exactly. before this. It's yeah. really, you know, I, I look at technology, and, and again, it comes back to the patient engagement. How do you get the patient to engage in that care gap that I defined earlier uh, and, and be empowered to, uh, to drive? And again, I go back to my own mother's experience where she was had cancer, stayed with my, my sister, but you know, my sister was recording everything on paper. So the home is still paper-based. So, but at the same time, we need to provide those tools so that the patient and the care team can collect it and, and accurately report it. And it's interesting that you know, the visiting nurse service would come three, three, times, a, three times a week, mm-hmm. but they wouldn't know the status of the patient until they walked into the door. That's right. My argument would be, hey, it would be great if this information was collected electronically and before the nurse even came up to the door, it's like the doctor looking at the chart before yeah. they walk into the exam room. They should look at it so they could be more efficient in where they actually went, frankly, relative to the mm-hmm. delivery of care. As well, you take a look at technology. 
I personally believe that keyboard on that uh, on that laptop is a, is a dinosaur. That's a wrong for for today's age and moving forward. Pick it on his computer. It's, yeah, I'm quite it's, fond of this. It's not a Lenovo device, one either. So. It's not a Lenovo. Yeah. But nonetheless, but the point is that you know how do we engage the technology needs to be very simple and intuitive as opposed to it being heavy and hard and complex. Yeah. Uh, you know, my 82-year-old mother is not going to connect. A, uh, a wireless blood pressure cuff to a uh, Linksys router. It just yeah. isn't going to happen, right? Yeah. So how do we be, how do we, and that's what we're focused on, yeah. how do we become very innovative in the way we produce technology and how do we make it su uh, very simple for the for the, uh, for the 82-year-old uh, grandmother or mother to, uh, to actually adopt it and use it? So, so this is perhaps, again, skeptical or her heretical in this environment, but the technology should be supportive of what we're doing, yes, not absolutely. the focus of what we're doing. Yeah, exactly. And so yeah. I, I think uh, whether it's a unique health safety identifier as a foundation for interoperability and, and collecting the data, serving it up in a useful, usable way is what is of paramount importance. Be that individual, a clinician, an end user, someone taking care of another person, that's, that's the, the ultimate goal. So, just, just, I, just, I want to chime in on, on what both people just said. Yeah. So the example I gave before about discharge mm -hmm. and the, the coordination between primary care and discharge, we've also, in the same, in the same effort, have looped in home health. Yeah. And home health is connected just the same way that the primary care, the ambulatory side is, um, to the acute side. I would say the connectivity piece probably took a few months redesigning the human interaction between the primary care providers, the ambulatory providers, and home health, and getting compliance on that communication coordination probably has taken us three years. Right. And But now it's happening, and there is a very significant uh, improvement in what goes on in the home health nursing staff that go to those houses now to see those patients fully understand what's going on, and if they have an issue, they're dealing with primary care, and again, preventing many, many patients from having to go back to the hospital unnecessarily. So in the context of this conversation, you know, one of the things we hear a lot about with security, data security at healthcare, PII, PHI, is that it's not really a technology problem, and the greatest failing is your end users. Mm -hmm. Can we apply that same kind of thinking to the greatest failing for the scenarios that you're describing is actually the patients? I mean, as Dr. McCoy said, technology should be an enabler. Does it, does it get the patients all the way there? Or what are the challenges after the technology is you know, good enough to delight users? I'm not sure. So what do you, in terms of the patients? So let me, let me chime in here. I, I yeah. think, I, think okay. I, I um, so, there, there are essentially at least three different layers here, right? For, and we've established this in, in the course of the discussion here. First is foundational. You gotta have these foundational components and you gotta think it through. This is not a haphazard journey to value-based care, right. So, right? You have to have the foundational components of syntactic uh, interoperability. You have to have the identification layer well done, well beyond what the current generation of EMPIs can do for you. And, and you have to manage all of the different layers around semantic data interoperability. So build up to that to that pyramid. The second component, obviously, is for us to make sure that we're able to get to the consumer and get to that experience that you're talking about right now, Tom. But I think what's beyond that, which is your question, is yes. really the crux of the goal of innovation. The real goal of innovation 
is to make the technology invisible, but the way we do it is through behavior change, right? At the end of the day, it's not about a better looking GUI, a graphical user interface, or a nice business plan for this startup or for an established company or anything else of that matter. It really is behavior change for clinicians or for consumers equally, okay? And how we get to that is through better design, better UX, user experience, but also how do we better incentivize the right components that need incentivization. So wellness, for example, right? Going in for the right sets of um, you know, wellness protocols in a timely manner, making sure that we're able to leverage technology um, as, as intimately as possible, but as invisibly as possible, so that we're able to you know, go about doing the things that we care about first, uh, where and, and, and then you know propagating what we need in terms of wellness, etc. I would flip it back. How often do you expect somebody to think about their banking app on their phone? Yep. You know, they, they they don't necessarily think about it unless there's a very specific reason for them to right. engage in that. And we have to be thinking putting more of the health in healthcare. It's not sick care. It, should, it shouldn't be sick care. It should be health and healthcare. Making the right decisions, helping inform individuals of the right choices and preventing them from getting the diabetes, the hypertension, et cetera. If you bend the cost curve by keeping people from becoming really sick later, you've really saved money. But doing the, expecting consumers, individuals, to be um, engaged consumers when they don't really seem to have a reason to be engaged at that point. Millennials, you know, they are on their phones all the time. They, they travel in herds and, and are doing this. Um, and they may not, they're not talking to one another, they're texting right. one another yeah. even as they go in that, that herd. For them to be engaged in something that's not just a Fitbit and something that's tracking their steps, challenging because they're invincible, they won't get sick, they will never have a healthcare problem. So it's a very different circumstance to engage them than it is somebody of my age or my parents, et cetera. So you have to, I think, reimagine Again, making the technology invisible. It's not about the technology. It's about how do we get the information to them as it's needed. There are the wearables that are coming, be it sensors on a, on a T-shirt. Uh, right now, if you're an athlete, you can get all sorts of blood pressure and temperature and heart rate and everything else. That's very different, though, than getting somebody who's 18 years old to make the right choices about contraception or about lifestyle. Do I drink? Do I not drink? You know, those are the kinds of things that are really more impactful on health than the technology is going to influence in and of itself. Excellent point. Yeah. So, I guess in closing, we have a couple of um, about three minutes or two and a half minutes here. What do you think would be would the biggest thing that you're going to achieve? And we kind of go around the horn here uh, individually over the next you know, like 30 seconds apiece. What do you think that uh, what you will meta always will tackle, what you guys will achieve in 2017 that you're looking forward to? I mentioned the, the comprehensive primary care initiative and yeah. CPTC Plus. So, so piggybacking on the things that I just talked about, mm -hmm. we're very interested in doubling down on transition to care, bringing in uh, skilled nursing facilities. So post-acute care into that loop with acute, ambulatory, home health, and um, uh, post-acute care and that connectivity and, and all those transitions. We're also looking at starting to focus on specialty, particularly cardiology, and particularly congestive heart failure as an ambulatory care-sensitive condition that in our region really can, could take some attention. So again, coordination of care between primary care and specialty. There's some other things, but those are two areas that we, that we really want to tee off on. That's fantastic. 
Tom? So for Lenovo Health, uh, the things that we're focused on in the in the coming year is to further drive and advocate the, the constructs around the unique health safety identifier and, and most importantly the value mm -hmm. as to why you need to move in that direction. But secondarily on the consumer side, Lenovo Health is strategy is to change the face of telehealth. It's to change the face of what that home looks like and how do you embrace that home uh, and how do you yeah. embrace it to Dr. McCoy's point uh, of you know how, how to leverage it and use it intuitively and, uh, and, uh, and to help uh, provide the value. Uh, it's not about the technology. It's, a, it's about the cul a culmination of a number of different things, but you need to, you need to provide something that the consumer I, uh, uh, I hate to say it, but there was someone that said someone that doesn't know what they want until they actually see it. Right. Uh, but the uh, and that's and that's the point. We, you need it, it hasn't been defined yet, and I think that there's the uh, there's the ability to, um, to to do that in the next calendar year. Excellent, Mike. What, what do you want to accomplish and, and tackle coming in? Well, I think having a unit health safety identifier would be Great front stuff. and center. There you go. Um, so beyond God that, bless you. you know, uh, <laughs> inter interoperability is, is, yeah. is foundational, <laughs> but, it is. but it has to be built on something like that. And that's from a global perspective. As you know, I'm on the IG International Board, and this is a global concern. It's not just a U.S. concern. Yeah, I agree. Dr. Schreser? I'll give you two things. One is, um, you know, we're in an environment where today, uh, with all of the digitization that's happened in the last decade, two decades, we're data-rich and information-poor, right? Um, so what we'd really like to do is leverage um, technologies like machine learning and deep learning, AI, to humanize the healthcare process. Mm -hmm. How do we allow physicians and patients and consumers to be human beings, right? Today, we are so inundated with technology. Technology is an impediment, it's a barrier to care, right? How do we make technology invisible, leveraging these capabilities that we have around ML, machine learning, and AI, so that we can truly humanize the care process? I think that's gonna be remarkable, and we're focused on that in the coming year. That's fantastic. Gentlemen, fantastic panel. I appreciate everybody's time. We appreciate everybody uh, listening. Thank you very much. And for everyone listening, thank you for joining us today. And please tune in weekdays at 2.30 p.m. Eastern, 11.30 a.m. Pacific. As always, you can track me on Twitter at HIT Advisor and use the hashtag ThisJustIn so you can respond to your comments from the show. In addition, all my content's always posted on my website at justinbarnes.com. Thanks, everyone. Have a terrific week.